This is Romans 9, verses 1 through 33, in the uh, ESV. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return and Sarah will have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, Though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. We lost, there we go. What shall we say then? Is there just injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make, his, make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. 
And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Let's bow our heads and pray. Heavenly Father, we are so humbled to hear these words. We are thankful for this time and this space to explore what Paul had to share um, with the churches in Rome. God, I pray that you work in our hearts and our minds to understand what exactly it is you're trying to say to us. Give us peace and give us confidence that our faith in you is enough. We pray all of this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. So although we're moving into a new series, Family Privilege, we are sticking with the book of Romans. And I know so many of you guys are like, yes, I've loved Romans so much. Um, me too, I love it so much. Last week we wrapped up our series on saints and Paul concluded that nothing can ever separate us from the love of God. He said, not death or life, or angels, or rulers, or things happening right now, or things that are gonna happen in the future, no powers, no things high, or deep, or low, nothing in all creation is able to separate us from God's love through Jesus. Now, if you've been listening to the Daily Walk podcast this week, you've probably noticed that about half or more of the podcast is dedicated to reading the scripture. Right, have you noticed that? And Becky's done a wonderful job reading it every single day, and Jackie did a wonderful job reading it today. It's a lot to take in this whole chapter. Japheth even said that once many people enter into Romans chapter nine, nine to 11, they usually just kind of skip those chapters and move on and pick up again in chapter 12. And so as Tom and Thomas both said, Japheth is not here, he's away in England, so we're just gonna skip over these, no, I'm just kidding. Um, he's probably watching online, hi Japheth. We're not skipping over this section. Um, but it is a tough section in scripture. It's something that I've personally been wrestling with and struggling with for the past few weeks. Um, it's something that I think I'll still continue to struggle with as we find out um, more and more. And Paul, even in this chapter, gets even wordier, if that's possible. Um, he goes through his ups and downs. We were just left with him saying, nothing can separate us from God's love. And then he tells us later on that he's super sad. 
So Paul walks us through this idea of family privilege and how or if we play our part in our own destinies. So it's really fun stuff, right? You know, the idea of predestination, wrestling through that, family privilege, Paul's really sad. Um, It's a really good chapter. And now I know what you're really wondering, and you're probably really thinking, is what craft is Camp Sanitas gonna do today with this chapter? Oh, that was on my mind. (laughs) But as we enter into this series, Family Privilege, Paul strikes a chord with many people Just by saying the word privilege today, that might strike a chord with you. The funny thing about privilege is you don't really know you have it until it's pointed out. It's just something that's always been. It's nothing you could have done to earn or deserve. It's just something that comes with the territory. Millennials, my generation, have been subject of scrutiny for all the things they've been destroying lately. Yeah. A reporter actually compiled a long list of all the things that millennials have quote unquote ruined. And so here's a few of the things, um, just to give you a taste of what my generation has killed um, in our time being here on this earth. Um, We have killed the nine to five work week, apparently. I don't know if we have or not. Um, Paper napkins, I do have to say, I don't really use paper napkins, I remember my Great-grandma used to buy them in bulk and always have like a nice big stack of them in her kitchen. Um, Soap bars. Apparently we're not using as many soap bars as previous generations. Home ownership. And I want to say that's not of our own um, want. (laughs) We haven't killed that on purpose. Uh, Department stores, you know, stores like Amazon and Etsy have popped up and making it easy to shop online and not have to go into a department store to buy something. Um, And this one I actually found out um, more recently was fabric softener. Apparently we don't use fabric softener um, when we do our laundry. The list goes on and on, but something that I thought was interesting, an article that came up that I was not expecting for my generation to have killed, was divorce. In the span of 2008 to 2016, divorce rates have apparently dropped 18%. It was joked in headlines um, that the articles were titled things like, Millennials are blamed for killing divorce, other than having an article titled, Millennials are staying in lasting marriages. Of course, we would get blamed for killing something rather than upholding something. Um, One article stated, Marriage is viewed by millennials more and more as an achievement of status rather than something that people do regardless of how they're doing in life. Millennials are waiting longer to get married until they can um, be fully educated and financially stable. So there are many conversations on both sides of this topic, and not every millennial reasoning for waiting to get married or what they view marriage to be um, is the same, but for a good chunk, marriage is seen as a privilege and it isn't taken as lightly because they know privilege comes with great responsibility. Paul is about to call out the privilege and the responsibility of his own people. Instead of saying, Israelites kill promises of God, he calls them to a place of tension out of love for each and every one of them. Paul prefaces what he's about to say with this. He says, 
I am in Christ, and I am telling you the truth. I do not lie. My feelings are ruled by the Holy Spirit, and they tell me I'm not lying. It's the preface that means something big's going to be said, right? Or maybe even something offensive. Like when someone says, no offense, but, or I'm not really mad, I'm just, I'm just frustrated, dot, 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 dot. Paul uses this, I'm saying this because the Holy Spirit is telling me to say this. It's a great way to say something. How can you get mad at that? How can you disagree with that? So Paul sets out to address a big topic in Romans chapter nine. He sets it up by saying this isn't something he's just taking willy-nilly, though he's not just thinking, oh, I'm just gonna write this on the spot. He's not just, oh, this idea popped into my head. It's something that he's been mulling over and it's something the Holy Spirit has laid on his heart. He goes on to say that something has been causing him deep sorrow and unceasing anguish in his heart for the Jewish people, his people. He is feeling so deep about it that in verse three he says, I would even wish that I were cut off from Christ if it would help them. I wanna pause there and ask each and every one of us this question. Have you ever been to a place in your life where you wished you were cut off from Jesus so that someone else could be connected to him? Now before you answer this question right away in your mind, I want you to understand the depth of this question and that it has real implications. Paul really meant what he said. He would have given up his connection with Jesus for other people. Obviously, this isn't how it works, and thank goodness it's not how it works, that there's not a set amount of people who can get in and you can just give up your ticket to someone else. But Paul is showing us how well he understands God's love by saying this. Because when you understand God's love and you know how good it is, you want others to have it too. Now, you might be thinking, huh, Janelle? <laughs> Janelle's excited about this chapter too, I am. <laughs> you might be thinking, of course I want other people to be connected to Jesus, why wouldn't I? That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus, is to make disciples, is to tell people about his goodness, is to connect them together. And that's nice, but it's not enough. Paul didn't just want them to be connected, he did everything in his power to back up his words. Paul gave up things in his life. He gave up his career partially. He traveled to places that were difficult to travel to. He experienced persecution and abuse and jail time. He went all out for the gospel. Paul went all out for the gospel because he understood the depth of God's love. So, how are we as a church? And how are we as individuals going all out for the gospel? Now let me preface this. It doesn't necessarily mean like being like Paul and doing that 180 flip and doing everything all at once. Sometimes it can be small, simple things. What do we do to live love to people all the time? This past Sunday, the church um, threw a wedding shower for Kiefer and I, and it was just incredibly beautiful, and the food was so good, and everything was just wonderful, and we felt so much love. So much love. 
Um, both of us were overwhelmed that each and every one of you has poured so much into us um, as individuals and as a couple now. And when we got home, I just cried. I held it together here, but I just cried because I didn't even know how to process the love and the family and the community that we had here. Kiefer didn't cry, but he felt emotional. <laughs> um, it don't, we'll see if he cries at the wedding. It doesn't happen very often. Um, but it reminded me that we are a church that backs up what we say. When we say live love here every single Saturday, we mean it and we live it. But how do we live love for people that we don't know? As Paul talks about the Jews as a group, I think, how do we love the people in Boulder as a group? How do we love the people in our neighborhood as a group? How do we love the people in our workplace or our classroom as a group? It makes sense to show love to people who are easy to love. We love those who are a part of our tight-knit circles, but what about the people on the outside looking in? Uh, Becky mentioned this idea in the Daily Walk podcast this week, and she posed the question of, what would things look like if we never gave our own salvation another thought and began looking out for other people? Paul's in that place. He is willing to give up anything he has so that others might understand this. Paul goes on in chapter 9 saying, they're the people of Israel the ones he's sad about. They're the people of Israel. They were God's chosen children. They have, the glory, or they have the glory of God and the agreements that God made between himself and his people. God gave them the law of Moses and he gave them the right way to worship. God gave his promises to them. They are descendants of our great ancestors and they are the earthly family of Christ. I hope you've gotten the hint of how we're getting to this title of family privilege now. The Jews are privileged. They're the ones given God's promises. They're the ones whose genealogy is connected with that of Jesus. They're God's children. They're the chosen people. So it becomes a tough pill for them to swallow when they hear things like, for God so loved the world, or while we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. It used to be all about them, and now it's all about everyone. Even more specifically in Paul's writings, he makes it clear that Jesus is not just for an elite group. I've just finished up a book. Um, I just decided to reread it this summer, and it really helped me connect what Paul is trying to say in Romans chapter nine. And I'll be quite honest with you. I haven't always been an avid reader, even now I don't consider myself an avid reader, but in high school I especially didn't read a ton. Um, I'm not sure if it was just because of a rebellious streak and I didn't wanna do what I was told. If I was told to read a book for a class, I would see how little of the book I could read. Um, but it's funny because now I wanna, I wanna have more time to read and so it's kind of like naps when you're a kid, right? You don't wanna nap when you're a kid, but now all of us as adults wish that we could have like stored those up and taken them now um, as grown-ups. That's how I feel. You fight them when you're young, but now you're like, oh, I wanna fight for a nap. Um, I remember being in a history class in high school and we were supposed to read a book a month and then we were supposed to give an oral report about it. 
Um, a friend had tipped me off about a book series in our school's library called Pioneer Women. Um, each book was a compilation of short stories um, of women on the Western Front and the struggles they had and the stories um, that they wrote. And I was informed this was the best choice for books to read for a few reasons. One, no one had ever read these books, right? No one's ever picked up a copy of Pioneer Women and thought, let me give this a read. So no one could trap you with a question about the book that you wouldn't be able to answer. So that was reason number one. Number two, if you didn't have time to read the whole thing, it was fine because you could easily read the back or a little chapter um, and you could have enough content for an entire presentation. Um, and also, there were multiple books in the series so we could get through about the whole semester um, just reading the pioneer women or reading the pioneer women. We thought it was a genius plan, but I'm sure our teacher and classmates um, who are paying more attention saw right through it. But needless to say, I wasn't a huge fan of reading back in the day, but something clicked. Something had to be really good to catch my attention. And it was my senior year um, in high school, and I took a senior lit class. And my class was the last period of the day, and it was a much smaller class. Um, and it was a lot of group conversations and activities, and so, you couldn't really get away with not reading the book because everyone's reading the same book, right? And these books were a full story and not just a compilation. So one of the books that had really caught my attention and that our class had really great discussion about was The Kite Runner. Now, if you haven't read this book, I'm so sorry. Um, there are gonna be a few tiny, tiny spoilers. Um, for those of you watching online, you can like mute me, go order a copy of the book or go read it online um, and then come back. Um, if you're in here in person, I'm sorry. The book's been out for 15 years now. Um, it's kind of like the Titanic when I showed you that trailer. Like you just either know or you don't know what's gonna happen at this point in your life. Um, but spoiler alert, warning, fair, it's out there. Um, just wanted to make sure. <laughs> so in his book, Khaled Hosseini takes you full circle of the life and struggles of a young boy named Amir. The story is set in the fall of Afghanistan's monarchy through the Soviet military invasion, um, the exodus of all the refugees to Pakistan and to the United States, and to the rise of the Taliban government. And we follow the story of Amir and his best friend Hassan, who is the son of one of his father's servants. Amir has kind of this love-hate relationship with Hassan. He loves him and is his best friend, but at the same time, he finds himself competing with Hassan, most specifically for his father's attention. It bothers him that Hassan, he feels like Hassan is given equal treatment or at least as equal as a servant's son could have. So during a huge kite flying tournament, Amir wins amongst all the other kite flyers, right? He wins in the eyes of his father as well. And besides um, just flying and cutting down other kites, the tradition was to run after the cut down kites and the most prized possession was the very last kite that was cut down. So once Amir cuts the last kite, and they realize that they've won, Hassan takes off to run the very last kite and bring it back. Amir yells to Hassan, come back with it. And Hassan yells back the famous line, for you a thousand times over. To save at least some of the spoilers um, for you and for your own reading, 
Amir ends up pushing away Hassan. He actually ends up getting um, the servant and both Hassan removed from the household. And then in the midst of the craziness and political changes and struggles and the evasion, he never sees him again. It isn't until years later that Amir learns Hassan is his half-brother. Life becomes more clear and more confusing all at the same time for Amir. Amir thought he had a say in how his father treated his servant's son. He thought it was unfair and he wanted more attention. Obviously, he got more privileges than Hassan did. He lived in a nicer house, was educated, received nicer things, and was bullied less because of who he was and who his father was. While Hassan lived in a mud hut, could barely read, had a mattress made out of straw, and was bullied because of his ethnicity and status. I couldn't think of a better story or illustration to share with you as we process Paul's long-winded rant about Jewish privilege, right? The Jews are the emirs in this story, feeling like they are the ones, and now all of a sudden they're realizing the family's a little bit bigger than just themselves, right? The family's a little bit bigger than just ourselves. Paul speaks the language of the Jews, reminding them of their past and the stories from the Torah. He speaks of Moses, and he speaks of Pharaoh, Abraham and Sarah, and how not all their descendants are their true children. I loved how the message put it this week, and it said, it's, what makes you a child of God isn't being of Abraham's sperm, right? That's not the thing that was make you a genetic child of God, it's the promise. The promise is what makes you a child of God. So to share that story with you, I hope you understand and see the comparison and contrast. Um, and in the story, it comes full circle, and Paul brings us full circle as well. Paul speaks this language of the Jews to help them understand. Paul lays out the power of God as well. He says he is able to choose who he shows mercy on. He uses this illustration that we are clay, and how does clay have any right to tell the potter what it should be made into? We're actually gonna be using some clay with our Kindergarten Connect group, and I don't know, but I think the kindergartners would be a little confused if all of a sudden the clay talked back to them and told them what they wanted to be made into. That would be a little bit silly to have some talking clay. The potter has full disclosure to make one lump of clay into a beautiful vase and one lump of clay into a bin to collect trash, right? In Romans chapter nine, we are presented with this idea of do we even get any say in our own life? Are we to just be destined to be any object that we get created, whether it's for destruction or for beauty? Are we lucky enough to even be an object of God's affection, or are we just going to be an object used for destruction? This is where many struggle with the idea of predestination. Is everything just set in stone, and are we just supposed to live with it? The answer is no. Sprinkled throughout the Bible, we are told of the choice of believing in Jesus. Those who believe in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. 
For me personally, I believe this idea of predestination in Romans chapter nine trips us up because we're not one of the churches in Rome at this time. We're a church of Boulder in Boulder in 2018. So many of Paul's illustrations can be lost on us at times. In his commentary on the book of Romans, John R.W. Scott says regarding the potter and the clay, he kind of lays this out in a really beautiful way, and so I'd like to read this for you. He says, human beings are not merely lumps of inert clay. And this passage well illustrates the danger of arguing for an analogy. To liken humans and um, God to a potter is to emphasize this difference between us and God. But there is another strand in the Bible, teach, uh, biblical teaching, which affirms not our unlikeness, but our likeness to God. Because we have be been created in his image, and because we still bear it, though distorted, ever since the fall. In consequence, there are occasions in which biblical characters have fallen on their faces, before God, but they are told to stand up on their feet again, especially to receive God's commission. Returning to Romans, Paul is not wishing to stifle genuine questions. After all, he has been asking and answering questions throughout the chapter, and indeed the whole letter, Paul's emphasis in this paragraph is that the potter has the right to shape the clay into vessels for different purposes. So God has the right to deal with fallen humanity according to both his worth and his mercy. It is nowhere suggested that God has the right to create sinful beings in order to punish them, but rather that he has the right to deal with sinful beings according to his good pleasure, either to pardon or to punish them. An analogy that's connected better with me than the potter and the clay, because um, I don't know about you, but it's not every day I'm making pots um, out of clay, but it's Google Maps. Google Maps, right? Do, any Google Map friends? Okay, yeah. There's Apple Maps, but Apple Maps is trash. Um, it's kind of like, you know that one episode in The Office where Michael Scott drives into the lake because he's watching um, the GPS and doing exactly what he tells, it tells him to? That's how I feel when I use Apple Maps. So I'm a Google Maps girl. But anyways, you plug in the address um, and you're given the best, quickest route possible and that route is in blue and it looks really nice. The other routes, a few other routes are given in gray and usually those will be a little bit longer. They tell you how many minutes longer they'll be, but there are your alternative options. Normally they just take a little bit longer, but nothing super different. The only thing Google Maps does is it always tries to take you on the toll road, even if it's the longer route. I don't know if you've noticed that, but it does. Um, I'm horrible at directions, so I use Google Maps um, very frequently. And something that I appreciate is that whenever I make a wrong turn or miss an exit um, or get turned around, I get rerouted, right? Or even if I wanna maybe even try a different way and I think I know how I can make it, um, Google Maps will always bring me back um, and make sure I get to my destination um, in a good amount of time. And I see the same thing with humanity. God has a route for us 
And over and over again, we've missed exits and turns. We've gone in the opposite direction. We've tried to go our own way that we know. Um, my grandma does not believe in Google Maps, Apple Maps, any kind of maps. She trusts her way, even if it's the longer way. Um, but God always brings us back on course. I hear Paul saying God is the potter and he has the ultimate decision how to handle us. He can mold us as clay into anything he chooses. He could easily disconnect the GPS and let us wander around aimlessly, but instead he chooses to reroute us. He chooses to mold us into something beautiful. Just as clay can be molded into something ugly and then changed into something beautiful again, because it hasn't been baked yet, right? The clay hasn't been baked yet. It can still be remolded. We can still be rerouted. The clay can still be turned into something beautiful. God set his people out on a route. Some of the detours they took added some drive time or meant they had to travel on some back roads. But that doesn't mean that God wanted to change his plan for them. At the end of chapter 9, Paul comes around to remind us that it's not about our genetics. It's about God's promise and our faith in that promise. Romans chapter 9, 30 through 33 says this. So what does this all mean? It means this. The non-Jews were, were not trying to make themselves right with God, but they were made right with God because of their faith. They were rerouted. And the people of Israel tried to follow a law to make themselves right with God, but they did not succeed because they tried to make themselves right by the things they did. They did not trust God to make them right. They fell over the stone that caused people to fall. And then Paul quotes Isaiah and he says this, I will put in Jerusalem a stone that causes people to stumble. It is a rock that makes them fall. Anyone who trusts in him will not be disappointed. In the story of the kite runner, Amir is rerouted. His whole life, he lives in pain and anguish in lieu of his privileges and his disadvantages. At the end of the book, he is able to reach his destination of reconciliation and redemption. Paul has reminded us that it's not about our status, our wealth, our family name. It's not about the privileges we receive or the disadvantages that we feel hold us back. At the end, it's about being molded by God. It's about having faith in what he's doing in your life. It's about trusting the GPS. You're not unworthy of God, but you're also not too good for God. You're clay, I'm clay. As Scott wrote in his commentary, when we fall on our faces before God, we are told to stand up on our feet again. One time I was driving across the country to school with a few friends, and we ended up going the wrong direction after a pit stop to get gas and snacks. Um, and when we realized we were off track, we didn't just turn around and go home, or not turn around, just I guess keep going in that direction. We didn't give up and just stay where we were and say, well, oh well. We turned around, we plugged in the GPS, and we let it reroute us. There is no distance too far, no directions too complex, no exit too far to be rerouted. 
There is no privilege we have or disadvantage that we resent that will hold us back from putting our faith in God. And as Paul quoted, anyone who trusts in him will not be disappointed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are thankful that you do have a plan for us, that your plan is good, that it's set in stone. But God, we are also thankful that you reroute us, that when we fall on our faces, you tell us to stand back up, that you tell us to keep moving forward, that you tell us to trust you being the potter. God, soften us, make us clay that is easily moldable. We trust in you, God, and we trust that by doing that, we will not be disappointed. Amen.